You are listening to ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. Failure to diagnose myocardial infarction is a relatively common cause of medical negligence claims against general practitioners. It is also the emergency room physician's greatest liability in practice. Let's delve into the why behind this problem that so often ends in tragedy. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm your host, Dr. Larry Kaskill. Joining me today is Dr. Michael Barrett, Director of the Fellows Cardiac Clinic at the Temple University Hospital. Dr. Barrett has been in private practice and has been reviewing malpractice cases for 25 years, as well as serving as a defense medical expert in many malpractice cases. Dr. Barrett, can you tell me how you became interested in this topic? Some years ago, an attorney friend of mine asked me to review a case he was defending. The case was a 50-year-old man with uh, atypical chest pain. That is, the pain was not consistently related to exertion or relieved by rest. And the patient had an abnormal EKG with some STT wave abnormalities. The practitioner diagnosed a costochondritis and ordered an anti-inflammatory medication and told the patient to return if the pain recurred. But two days later, the patient was found expired, and an autopsy revealed an acute myocardial infarction with triple vessel coronary artery disease. Later on, it was discovered that the patient had a normal EKG three weeks earlier for a pre-op evaluation. I told the lawyer it would be difficult to defend the practitioner because of the failure to obtain the earlier EKG and refer the patient. So from that case, I became interested in this topic, and later I found a comprehensive study of 349 such cases. Tell us a little bit more about the study of these, uh, which sounds like a nice chunk of cases. Yes, these were 349 cases. They were collected by a a group of uh, doctor-owned malpractice companies, and they pooled all their results. These cases all had a definite myocardial infarction where a practitioner was sued and a payment was made. Basically, they analyzed these cases to look for patterns in the patient's symptoms, their presentations, the demographics of the patients, and also what uh, factors contributed to the misdiagnosis and to the type of practitioners involved. So what kind of practitioners were, were most commonly involved in the cases? Well, there was 495 doctors involved in these cases, and actually one-third of them were family practitioners. That was the largest group. 20% of the doctors were internists, and only 15% were emergency room physicians. And actually, the smallest group of all was cardiologists. Only 7% of the case of cases were with cardiologists. It was a little bit surprising to me that family practitioners were the highest of group of physicians here, because you would expect these kind of cases to present in the emergency department or, or even in the hospital. Yeah, but yeah, I'm a primary care physician, and, and every day I have people coming in with, with chest pain, and it's atypical, and so I'm not that surprised that they were family practitioners, because a lot of people don't necessarily want to go to an emergency room or even think their symptoms are significant enough. Well, yeah, that's true, and I, I think most patients do go to their primary care doctor first with any complaint, and chest pain just happens to be uh, the one that triggered these cases. So getting an old EKG sounds paramount to defending a case. Oh, yeah. I mean, once you think that atypical chest pain could represent coronary artery disease, uh, you need to do an EKG yourself, first of all, but then you need to find out, was there a previous one? Uh, Because even subtle changes can, can acquire a lot of significance in this setting. You know, in the outpatient setting... But, you know, how often do you see a myocardial infarction starting and having a normal EKG, or does that never happen? Oh, no, that can happen, particularly if the patient presents, you know, without pain in front of you. I mean, they don't all give you a textbook presentation of, you know, crushing chest pain, sweating, and short of breath. They'll come in and say, I had this pain, you know, yesterday or last week, 
that when I walked up the steps and when I rested, it went away. And the pain is kind of central chest and oppressive. And you can do a resting EKG, and it will be normal in between episodes. But those episodes could be angina, and they could be leading up to a myocardial infarction. So what do you do with that patient who's in front of you and is stable, is not having chest pain, and has a normal EKG? It's, I'd be hard-pressed to say, I've got to put you in the hospital. Well, you have to look at the context. I mean, um, there is a lot of chest pain out there in primary care. Much of it's clearly non-cardiac, you know, pleuritic in nature or reproducible when pressing on the patient's chest and so forth. But in a patient, you know, middle-aged patient, over 35, if they have major risk factors for coronary artery disease, and I'm thinking smoking, hypertension, high cholesterol, family history, in that setting, even a chest pain that does not sound that alarming uh, should be investigated further with at least a resting EKG. So in addition to an EKG, what can the average internist or family practitioner do in his office? Do you subscribe to the use of these uh, acute cardiac markers? No. Actually, as a cardiologist, I really don't think it's a good idea to order biomarkers uh, in the office, um, and I'll tell you why. If they are positive, and if you adopt that as a practice, they will be. A certain percent of them will come back positive. You've now got evidence of myocardial necrosis that's at least six hours old and ongoing. If you're going to order cardiac enzymes, you should place the patient in a monitored setting like an emergency department where they can be monitored while you're waiting for them to come back. I just think cardiac enzymes in an office setting are not a good idea at all. Right. I'm hearing that as an emphatic no. Yeah, I mean, every time I've seen a practitioner do that and they come back positive, the patient doesn't sit in your office for the six hours that it takes to run the test and get it back. The enzymes don't even begin to go positive until six hours after the infarct has started. So if you're doing this, you're going to find positives that are already well behind the eight ball. So let's go back to that study of the 349 patients. How old were the majority of those patients? Actually, most of these patients were middle-aged, and the median age in this study was 51. So half of them were over that and half were under. 70% were men, and only 30% were women, which was a little surprising to me because with atypical presentations, uh, you really expect them to occur more in women and even in diabetics. But these were middle-aged men who were presenting, and actually 70% of the patients had no previous history of heart disease. So it was a first presentation. You are listening to Reach MDXM233, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Larry Caskell, and I'm with Dr. Michael Barrett, director of the Fellows Cardiac Clinic at the Temple University Hospital and malpractice defense medical expert. Doctor, the patients in this study, what kind of risk factors did they have prior to having their events? Uh, they had major risk factors. 42% of them were smokers, and a similar percent also had hypertension. A quarter of the patients had a positive family history, and also 24% of them were obese. Those are all fairly significant risk factors. So chest pain occurring in that constellation of risk factors should make your ears stand up a little bit. What I found interesting as a cardiologist was only 14% of these patients were diabetic. And it was interesting because we're tuned to look for atypical presentations in diabetics. That was not the common presentation in this study. So we're kind of brainwashed to always have a higher suspicion with diabetics, even though it may not necessarily translate into reality all the time. Exactly. I mean, in, in this study, they were middle-aged men who were, you know, hypertensive and smoking, and they presented with atypical pain, um, a presentation that you would think, geez, Coronary artery disease should be somewhere in your differential. Right. So how about, how about some of these people having no risk factors? There are a few with no risk factors, and I think that may be the toughest group to diagnose of all. 
So what, what were they complaining about? What was the chief complaint? Again, not surprisingly, the overwhelmingly common complaint was chest pain, 92% of cases. And what kind of characterization did they use for their chest pains? Well, the, the typical, um, typical chest pain due to angina is characterized by three elements, you know, oppressive central chest pain of the appropriate duration, uh, precipitated by exertion, relieved by rest. These patients did not typically present with all three of those. They were missing one or more of them. And you know, by definition, when you miss one or more of those de- elements, you have atypical pain. And that was the most common presentation in this study. And what, what testing was used besides EKG? Was that it? Yes. But I should tell you, when they analyzed the mistakes, uh, more than half of those EKGs were either misinterpreted by the practitioner or, surprisingly, not reviewed at all. And this actually happens when your practice includes middle-level practitioners like nurse practitioners or physician's assistants. Uh, I think the impression I got is that you need to have a system in place to review EKGs that are done by mid-level practitioners. Yeah. Did did any of these cases have a patient that came in with something, you know, you hear a lot about people or primarily women coming in with atypical pains such as just nausea and vomiting. And a lot of times the MI is missed because it's misdiagnosed as gastroenteritis. Was there any of those in this case? Well, there were a few. Like I said, 8% of patients did not have chest pain. But that's not, you know, the garden variety case that's resulting in these malpractice claims. I think when a patient presents without chest pain uh, and you have no indication to go further and and something, you know, a patient dies suddenly with a heart attack, that's usually a defensible case because you as the practitioner aren't charged to foresee the future. You know, your job is to take the history, make a, a rational assessment, and a good plan. And when the patient has no chest pain and there's no tip at all, I mean, patients do die of heart attacks without chest pain, but generally those don't result in malpractice suits. So how do you feel about the new technology, the 64-slice CAT scanners that are available, not everywhere, but many places, as a way to confirm if someone's having a heart attack? Yeah, you know, I just got back from the American College of Cardiology where a lot of that technology was on the exhibit floor. Uh, technically, there are still issues with the test. I mean, if you've got normal coronaries, it's a wonderful test. It shows normals very, very well. Its best use right now is, in fact, to exclude patients with chest pain who, you know, clearly don't have coronary artery disease. But then, as soon as you get into percent of blockages, the test has some technical issues. And especially if the patient has established coronary disease, and already has a metal stent in place, the test has a really hard time seeing inside those stents. So I personally think it's premature uh, to begin using CAT scans to rule out acute myocardial infarction. But it's also, it seems like it would be a cheaper way to get someone evaluated and not have to bring him in the hospital overnight and do a rule out. Well, yes, I, I think a CAT scan is cheaper, although a lot of emergency rooms now have a chest pain track where they'll sit on the patient for 23 hours, do three sets of enzymes and EKGs, and obtain a cardiology consultation. So I don't see CAT scan basically changing that care paradigm at this time. So what would you do, or what have you done in your practice, to avoid misdiagnosis? I think the the best thing a practitioner can do, and what I've always done, is anytime you're evaluating a middle-aged patient with chest pain, the possibility of coronary artery disease should cross your mind. And that should trigger a search for risk factors, a, certainly a complete history of the pain syndrome. And if you don't have a, a baseline EKG on that patient in your chart already, that's when you should get one. Nobody is going to be 100% correct. 
But I think you have to have a, a method of approaching this problem to not overlook these common elements that, that were happening to the patients in this study. And what about when you do these EKGs and you get just very minor, nonspecific STT wave changes, let's say in lead 3 or AVF, you just see maybe some T wave flattening. When do you, when do you get alarmed? I don't think you get alarmed with that, but I think that's when um, your habits as a practitioner can stand you in good stead. If you have a habit of getting a baseline EKG on your 45 or 50-year-old patients, so it's in the chart, you have something to compare that to. If the pattern is stable and has not changed, I think you can feel a little more reassured. If there's a change, though, that's a red flag and should trigger further evaluation, even if you're not overly impressed with the initial complaints. Now, I'd like to thank our guest, Dr. Michael Barrett, director of the Fellows Cardiac Clinic at the Temple University Hospital. I'm Dr. Larry Caskell, and you've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. For comments or suggestions, please send your email to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening.